Hi, this is Kathleen Mercury with Games and Schools and Libraries, part of the Inverse Genius Fine family of products. I'm speaking today with Jesse Wright. Jesse, thanks so much for being on the show. Uh, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So Jesse and I um, became acquainted through the Facebook group Association of Board Game Educators. And I don't remember the exact post on where we, um, what the exact post was about. But we um, managed it. We had a shared interest in whatever was being talked about. And so I had thrown out like, hey, you should come on the show. And now you came on the show. And um, I think what you do is really, really interesting. And uh, I'm glad that you can be on the show to talk about it. So you're a game designer, but you also um, do work with um, – you're doing postdoctoral work right now um, under your – you're a philosopher, but under, like, philosophy of science. And one of the things you've done in the past is gamification. And so those are the things that we're going to talk about today. So um, speaking of games and game design, can you tell us a little bit about what games you've designed, things people may know of, projects you're working on? Uh, I can tell you a little bit about some of those things, and I can only vaguely gesture at many of those things. Um, so I'm I'm relatively new when it comes to the board game design industry. Uh, although I've been designing board games for five or six years, sort of as a hobby, it was the last two or three that I've decided to take it seriously and see if I can get some of these games that I've made out there in the world and on store shelves and hopefully in the hands of people and having fun with them. Um, so to that end, what I have that's out there now or going to be out there very soon um, is a co-design game with uh, San Fung Lim. So we did Legend of Korra Pro Bending Arena, which was on Kickstarter in September, will be fulfilled by February, should be in stores by, I don't know, March, April. Um, so that was a really fun project. It's yeah, very exciting. Awesome. To work with an intellectual property, actually learned a ton from it. I've done a bit of other intellectual property work that's done and is in the printers, and I can't actually say anything about, um, or I suppose shouldn't, but there are other games with my name as one of the designers that will be hitting stores in January, February or so that are based on a number of other IPs. Um, I've also got uh, a, a project with Gray Fox Games. They did... Um, uh, oh, I can't now. I'm, I'm losing uh, my nearby memories of what they've done. Um, well, Gray Fox is here in St. Louis, and I'm good friends with yes. uh, Josh Lobkowitz, one of their designers, Shane. They yes. did Champions of Midgard. They've Champions got Bushido going on right now on Kickstarter. That's Deception right. in Hong Kong. Deception Murder in Hong Kong has been a great one for them. So, yeah, they have a whole bunch of fun projects. My good friend uh, Aaron Beldmer did Conquest of Sparrows with them. So, yeah, though they're great guys. Yeah. I love of Gray Fox. Yeah, actually, Josh is one of my favorite people in the industry. He's been fantastic to work with. Um, and so, yeah, thanks for filling in uh, where my, my memory has had let me down. So I have one game with them about a, a semi-cooperative game about um, sort of building stuff in a wasteland uh, that's got some really cool, neat mechanics. And so that should be up on Kickstarter next year. It's it's basically done at this point. So That's so exciting. Hmm. Yeah, See, so got, that's... I've got two games that are in the pipeline. One, um, two signs. So one we've um, I did with my boyfriend Mark Selmeyer, and that's been sent to the game company basically because we had to do the development as well. And so that we sent off, say you know, for them to review, and you know, I hope it's done. Um, we'll see what they say. So that one's kind of in the process. And then I just signed another one 
And that'll be announced pretty soon, too. Um, and it's exciting. But the fact that you're so close to, like, fulfillment and seeing stuff on the shelves, that's so, oh, gosh, it's so fulfilling. That's awesome. Yeah, it is really exciting. I'm really, really excited to see what happens when, when these games start getting out there. I have to admit, I've, I've got their BGG pages bookmarked. And for better or worse, I keep checking them to see what's going on and <laughs> looking forward to seeing what people say for yeah. whether it's good things or bad things. I just want people to play these games and and enjoy them have opinions about them and you know yeah it's exciting to put your work out there i'm I'm a little i'm definitely interested to see you know there's that part where you know you're gonna have to i mean you me you know that thick skin as far as especially when people don't like because especially i mean the one that we've sent off to the publisher is not only roll and move there's player elimination which are kind of like those are big no-nos oh super big no-nos but there's a twist on it and it's fun and it's designed pretty well that player elimination should happen very much near the end but for the game it makes sense to have it as like a real sort of sense of tension there um but yeah especially when you're you know, these like sort of sacred cows that have been slain to resurrect them. It'll be interesting and fun to see what people think. Some people will just probably just hate it for that. And that's okay. But I think uh, it'll be fun to see. So I'm excited for you. And because uh, especially designing with Sam, that's really exciting because he's really, really supportive and super awesome. Yeah, Sen's fantastic. Um, he's been a mentor to me over the last three or four years, and in the last two, we've become co-designers. So it's been great to work with him, and I'm looking forward to continuing to do so as opportunities arise. Cool. Well, all right. Well, let's talk about, since you know, games in schools and libraries, not just games on our dining room tables in various states of completion. <laughs> um, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> that's my life. Um at some point, I'll have people over again. Um, so, let's, so, but what you're the work that you do with um, that especially relates to games and schools and libraries. Your work with philosophy is really, really interesting, and I think it's something that is something a lot of teachers like myself aspire to do more of. And so, I'm excited that you're here to talk about it. Yeah, um, that, I mean that is why I was excited to be here in the first place. I don't get a lot of opportunities to talk about this stuff. So, um, to add a tiny bit of extra context for the listeners, um, I <clears throat> I am a philosopher. I got my PhD this fall. That was a big, exciting achievement. Yeah, that's uh, congratulations. That's wonderful. Thanks. Uh, there is light at the end of the tunnel for anybody <laughs> that's engaged in a PhD right now. Um, but uh, And I'm now at Stanford doing a postdoc uh, in my main area of research, which is philosophy of science. I, and as part of that, what I study is how scientists use technology to aid their reasoning and sort of the advantages and pitfalls of doing so. And so, uh, but you can't really... You, or you ought not to have an interest in a professional career as an academic that is a professor at a university or a college if you don't have a passion for teaching. And I have a passion for teaching, but due to a variety of, of challenges with the way specifically... So uh, you, you got to have a passion for teaching if you're going to have an eye on an academic career because 60 to 70% of your time as a professional academic is spent in the classroom. Well, and, and I think for those of us who've been through undergraduate school and graduate school, in my case, twice, you know, you can definitely tell when their purpose is not really the people in front of them, but their work and research on their own. Yeah, absolutely. And even in research-oriented institutions, you still spend 60 to 70% of your time in front of a classroom. So um, if you're not going to enjoy that, if you don't have a passion for that, then you're in the wrong career path. Anyway, so I definitely have that. Um, 
But one of the challenges in going to grad school is balancing doing your research and finding ways to practice and become experienced at and trained at teaching. Um, and this is especially difficult uh, at some Canadian universities like where I went um, because of you know, various uh, issues with sessional instruction. Graduate students don't actually get opportunities to teach. Um, so I joined into a uh, uh, an outreach program that the institute that I was doing my PhD as part of had where we had connections with local uh, elementary schools and secondary schools and teachers who, through various personal contacts with people in the institute, uh, would invite philosophy, specifically philosophy graduate students, to their classrooms to do lessons and activities to help their students learn a bit more about various kinds of things that are going on in philosophy. Um, and this was good because it gave us grad students opportunities to uh, teach, practice teaching, and also engage in teaching a student body we normally wouldn't actually get to have any experience with at all, um, which is the, the younger kids. Well, what I think is interesting about this, too, is it's not just... I think it probably changes a lot of people's conceptions, probably especially the teachers' conceptions of what exactly philosophy is. You know, you usually think of it as, you know, in terms of the great philosophers and the big questions that they sort of struggled with. But as far as like the the practical applications of that in terms of, you know, really assessing what do we know, how do we know it, and really questioning those sorts of base assumptions that we hold towards the content and practices that we use, I think this probably was a complete reversal for them, especially in terms of how they approach the work that they do and the content they present to kids. Yeah, I mean, I really hope so. That was a big part of the outreach program was uh, if, I mean, you may or may not know, but philosophy has a big public perception problem mm -hmm. um, in that it's often derided by professional scholars in other fields. I know Neil deGrasse Tyson, for instance, likes to backhand philosophy as if it's something that doesn't deserve to be around anymore. That's uh, disappointing. And philosophers don't do a terribly good job of sort of advocating for ourselves. Um, and so one of the hopes with this outreach program was that we would be able to um, introduce young students to the ideas and the value of philosophy uh, before they're, you know, significantly, their opinions about it are significantly negatively shaded by the media, um, but also to show teachers and elementary and secondary school that there's a lot of interesting things going on in philosophy and perhaps Plato and Socrates and Aristotle and even Aquinas are, and Descartes are not the most interesting things that could be talked about. There's lots of cool stuff in contemporary philosophy that's very relevant to um, things that are happening in the world around us right now. So. I definitely will want to hear more about that, but continue with um, right. Because as we were talking before the show, you know, I teach gifted kids and philosophy is a great topic for them, especially because they're so incredibly intelligent, but they're also middle school students. So, you yeah. know, emotionally, they're just feeling like they're encountering the world for the first time and they have this tremendous you know, intellectual ability to handle it sometimes. And so to really help them develop, you know, tools and approaches to understanding this world around them, I think there's so much that we can do. So I'm definitely interested in that, but keep going with um, talking about your project. Well, actually, that's a good transition. Um, because through this program, what ended up happening is we got the opportunity to um, teach a sort of gifted class of students. They were grades five and six. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's like, 
11 and 12 mm-hmm. um, yeah. years old. 10, 11, 12, uh, somebody, yeah. Yeah, like in, in that range. Sure. Um, to teach them about philosophy of science. Um, and we had to do this, uh, sorry, had to, we had the opportunity to do this uh, with a whole day, which was really exciting for us because usually our activities were like, we got an hour or maybe even 45 minutes with the class and we had to do something very sort of quick and compact and uh-huh. exciting. But this time we had this um, enriched class of bright kids who were looking for challenges and we had them for an entire school day. So we wanted to do something sort of big uh, and interesting and engaging, but at the same time, teaching philosophy of science has one sort of central challenge with it, even at the level of teaching undergraduate students, which is that most topics in philosophy of science require some background knowledge and understanding of specific sciences. Uh So if you don't know anything about physics or neuroscience or biology or chemistry, you're going to have a really hard time appreciating the arguments and debates in philosophy of science because we build them out of case studies. Uh And, And so that that secondary disciplinary knowledge is kind of important for really coming to grips with, with what we're trying to discuss in the philosophical literature. And this is a challenge when teaching undergraduate students, and it's especially a challenge when you're trying to introduce philosophy of science to um, 11 and 12 year olds. Right. If you know, if 19 year olds don't have, don't often don't have the requisite background knowledge of physics to grapple with some of these basic issues, certainly 11 and 12 year olds won't have that background knowledge yet. Right. Um, And so faced with this challenge, we decided in part because I was part of the team and I designed games sort of on the side already and I was learning about gamification and I was eager for opportunities to just put it to use to use a game. Uh, So we put our heads together and we ended up finding uh, a way to use games to introduce these students to the philosophy of science debates without actually needing to bring them up to speed at all about any of the specific details of scientific practice. So, um, and that actually has led me to become a sort of big advocate for game-based learning and a specific form of using games in the classroom, um, which is as a kind of, I guess, simplified simulation, you could say. Uh Um, So the way this uh, game ended up going was that we got the students to be proto-scientists in a way, or like approximate being scientists, and then to reflect on their own activities as these you know, pseudoscientists or, or pretend scientists. And the activity that we had them doing to sort of get this experience to work was that we had designed a very simple board game. It just had a track, some numbers on it, two different colors of pieces, two different players. Players played a card each turn. Cards came from decks of, with the exact same numbers in them, and the pieces moved along the track. Uh-huh. We took pictures of the game being played, so different steps uh, during the phases or turns. And we annotated those pictures, um, and we created data sets out of this. We then gave these data sets to the students, and so the game they were actually playing was they were using these pictures of the game to try and figure out what the rules of the game were. Um, And then we had them do little presentations at different stages as if they were at conferences, telling everybody about their ideas and why they thought they were right. So what were sorts of things you were wanting them to produce? What were some sort of like questions or, um, or types of connections that they were making looking at these pictures? Um, So with respect to them looking at these pictures, we wanted them to try and figure out what 
the rules of this game were? What was governing the way the pieces were moving on the board? What determined who won? Um, how did players make progress in the game? So in a way, the, the game that was shown in the pictures was sort of analogous to the world, you could say. Right. And the rules of that game were analogous to the phenomena or patterns in the world that scientists are trying to uncover and understand. Mm-hmm. So when they're uh, saying, so when student A says that this is a game where you play cards and the number equals the number of spaces a piece can move, and the other students say, well, how do you really know that? So you're basically wanting them to question the base, you know, assumptions that they have about anything, but that to, to apply it to this particular game scenario. Yeah, exactly. And so, um, and that's kind of how conversations would go. Some students would propose hypotheses, and, and we gave them some structure for how to go about doing this. We, didn't, mm-hmm. we gave them a, a strategy for coming up with hypotheses and a strategy for testing them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then their peers would say, like, okay, well, why do you think that? And then they would show, looking at different pictures, like, look, it fits with all these pictures. So in this way, they're sort of testing their hypotheses against the data. We give them more data as the day went on, and their hypotheses are able to get more sophisticated. Um, And the way we got the philosophical details into this picture is we actually, we curated the data. We wanted to make sure that certain kinds of um, interactions between the students were possible and mm-hmm. highly probable. Specifically, we so as a, a good example of this is uh, one of the things that philosophers of science have discussed is uh, what we call underdetermination of theory by evidence, where um, the, the sort of problem here is that for any given th- body of evidence, while it may look like we've only got one good theory that accounts for it, there's nearby possible theories that could also equally account for that body of evidence, right? So no, no theory is, is uniquely supported by your evidence. It's always possible to come up with another theory that tells just as good of a story about the data that you have on hand. And so to make sure that we get a chance to talk about this idea that um, just because you've got a good fit, you would think you have a good fit with your data, doesn't mean that there isn't another way that you could explain your data. We made sure that in our early data sets, rules of the game were obscured. Uh So you couldn't tell, there was no way to tell from the early data sets that we gave the students what the colors of the cards actually meant. Because we made sure that those never made a difference to any of the games that we were showing. Uh-huh. Uh, and this way, the students would come up with different explanations for what the color of the card was doing. And none of the data that they had before them would let them decide this theory is better or this theory is better. You guys are right and you guys are wrong. It, it looked like, well, it looks like we're both right. But that doesn't make sense because you're saying that the color determines which piece moves and you're saying that the color determines who gets to draw a card. And it can't be doing both of those things. Um, but we can't tell which of those things it's doing. Well, one thing I think that's really interesting about this, and I am more than happy to pilot this out. If you want, um, if you want to have uh, more teachers do this in the classroom as part of this project, I'm absolutely willing to do so. And one thing that I think is especially interesting, and I think it might have been uh, Jay Little who told me about this, but it doesn't matter. But one thing um, that we talked about was as a, as a activity for kids doing game design, or to you know, and especially when you're talking about the rules, is to give kids all the components of a game, not the rule book. And letting them kind of piece together from all the different components 
how they think you play the game. And, you know, if a game is designed, you know, the idea, you know, if a game is designed relatively intuitively well, they could probably come up, they should be able to come up pretty close to the idea of the game in terms of what you do with all the pieces, how you use them. And so um, it's something that I haven't done, you know, with my students. I thought mm. it was, it's kind of an interesting idea, especially because from a game design standpoint, like I'd love to put Star Wars Carcassonne down in front of them, give them everything, yeah. and then see if they can figure that out. Or just, oh, you know, gosh. like a whole new cool way to play with all these pieces. That would be awesome, too. Yeah. You just blew my mind. I think you just solved one of the problems with my project. <laughs> So I've been trying to take this 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 activity that we made and put it in a format that would be more usable for mm-hmm. other people. And one of the challenges with it is that the way the activity flows is you have to have a baseline game. It can't be a commercial game because students might have played it and know the rules and that right. defeats the point. And then you have to create these data sets based on it. Mm-hmm. And then data sets have to be created in ways that allow certain kinds of interactions between the students to happen so that those can become your discussion points. Right. That's uh, this ties into the way that I think one of the cool ways I think you can use games in the classroom is the sort of kickstart for a discussion uh-huh. to help like scaffold students up to things that they couldn't reach without those experiences. Um, and it's really hard. I've been having a hard time figuring out how to set this up in a way that would allow the teacher to decide what kinds of things that they want to start discussions based on without either generating an, a kind of absurd number of data sets or requiring the teachers to do the data set generation step themselves, which is a lot of work. Mm-hmm. However, the thing that you just suggested might actually be the solution, which is instead of going with pictures of the game being played, we just provide the students with parts of the game. Mm-hmm. And then if, I could probably find a way to design a game where depending on what parts you give students, that's going to lead to different kinds of conversations and different kinds of proposals for the way the game works. Uh Such as if you left out the player aids or forgot to give them the roads for Carcassonne. Right. Right. Um, And so anyway, I, you just, my mind is spinning and now I'm like, Oh man, when's this going to be over? So I can go do some work on this. (laughs) Well, I love that. That's so cool. (laughs) I mean, um, I think, and I, well, honestly, because for me, one of the best parts about this podcast is I never really get a chance to talk with other people, to actually talk with people about using games in the classroom. You know, I have my website, kathleenmercury.com. I have, um, you know, there's Twitter and, you know, social media, Facebook, where, you know, like how we connected. But it's really, really hard to actually just talk with other people who use games in the classroom because there's a lot of interest, especially on the digital side of things. But for tabletop game design, there's certainly, you know, the much, <laughs> we are the tiny little hut in this big wide landscape. So, no, this yeah. is awesome. This is, this is why I love doing it. That's so cool. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, I can keep going on and on about how I think games should be used in the classroom. I mean, well, I think so, it's a- so. Well, actually, so then don't do that because I think, okay. especially Good. for a lot of people who um, want to do more with games in the classroom and they need to convince their administrators that this is a good idea. Mm-hmm. People are always looking for more reasons and justification. So have at it. Yeah. So um, awesome. I, I've just you know, been working on drafting a paper about this. So, so that's good. It's a good opportunity to try these things out in, in a conversation. So one of the, the things I think is really cool about analog games, um, in particular is one that they're accessible. It's kind of easy for people to make them. So using digital games in the classroom, 
requires you to have a programmer and mm-hmm. right whereas uh, as you know with a pencil a piece of paper maybe a die if you're really really fancy um you can design an analog game you can make Absolutely. a board game right uh it's a very low barrier to entry so i think they're really useful tools that educators of all stripes could could benefit from um because they're easy to get into and the question mm-hmm. the big question is if you're interested in using games in your classroom, what can you do with them other than distract your students, right? There's there's this big literature about ways in which games and gamification can do more educational harm than, than good. Um, and so one of the things that I found with this philosophy of science activity and other ways that I've used games in my philosophy classrooms when I've had tutorials and, and I've been teaching undergrads because um, I make anything an excuse to design a game and I'll do it, right. uh, is, is that I found games to be really useful to do a particular kind of sort of learning scaffolding, um, which is when you've got topics or ideas or um, concepts that you think are just a little out of reach of where your students currently are, um, one really effective way to get the students to be able to start grappling with those concepts or theories or ideas is to put them in a situation where they can use those concepts to think about their own life experiences. Okay. So Um, give an example. Right. So, um, oh man, good. This is good. Uh, (laughs) I'm trying to think of something offhand. Um, all I've got is my philosophy of science game. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll keep running and then we'll come back to that example. Sure. So the idea here is uh, if you can create an experience in your classroom that your students can discuss in terms of the concepts that you want them to start understanding better. So say you've got you know these concepts of underdetermination or justice. I mean, justice is a good one. That's another thing that I've used games to, to teach in undergrad <laughs> classes. Um if you want them to discuss concepts of justice, you could get them to think about situations in their lives that they felt were unfair and to analyze those in sort of a journal reflection. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's a standard approach to start getting people to grapple with, with ideas about justice and distribution of wealth and fairness. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one challenge there is our lives are really complicated and there's lots of emotions tied up in our daily experiences. Uh, and so it can be really difficult to sort of sort out how these abstract concepts of fairness that you're learning about and these views of justice that you've been reading about apply when you've got all these other sort of complicated things, relationships and emotions mixed into these feelings of unfairness, right? Mm-hmm. It's not just about who has what and who doesn't have what. Um, it's also about all these other sort of complicated pieces of our social lives. Um, and when you're trying to get students just to grasp the basic ideas, it's not they're you know, not quite time to get those complicated dimensions in. So this is where I found games to be useful. So I've made games that are inherently unfair. Uh-huh. Um, so when you play this game, you, you, we deal out roles. People are different roles in society. And you got a monarch, and you've got some soldiers, you've got some peasants. And we're going to go around the room a few times, and everybody's going to take some actions. And at the end of the game, whoever's got the most points, the most chips wins. But the way that I designed this game, uh, the monarch has the highest probability of having the most chips. They also happen to start with the most and have access to the actions that let them gain the most. Uh Um, And so we play this game and we get to the end of it and I ask the students, like, was that fair? And they immediately think, well, it wasn't fair. And we can start talking about why it didn't feel like it was fair. and in this way, they're, they're, they end up using the, the ideas that they've been reading about 
to think about what it was like to play this unfair game, uh-huh. which is easier for them to think about because they just did it. And it's not tied up in all these complicated social things that happen in their everyday lives. And they start grasping how these concepts and ideas of fairness and justice and distribution of wealth uh, apply to this very simplified case of playing this game. And then from there, we can step out and start thinking about, okay, well, now how do these things make sense in the broader context of the society we live in? What about some like things that just happened in politics or whatever? Uh-huh. Um, and so th- this is the, that, that's sort of a crude illustration, a simplified illustration of, of one thing you can do with games is you can use games to create these very specific experiences that students can then analyze in a way uh-huh. with the concepts and ideas you're trying to teach them. Um, and I found that students have an easier time doing this in part because they've had those experiences. And so the analysis isn't analyzing some abstract thing that happened to some other person. Uh-huh. It's really just looking inside themselves and saying, well, how did I feel when I was playing that game? Ah, I felt like, you know, that person had a better chance of winning than I did. And that, okay, so that's what fairness is about, right? It's about chances of success. It's not about like who has what and and so on and so forth. Uh-huh. So I feel like I'm rambling now. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, I'm listening. I think that's really interesting. And I'm interested too. Um, so the game that you're talking about, is that something that, um, that does that ex- exist outside of your world? I mean, is that something that people could also get and use? Uh, that the, So the one I, I just described does, um, and something I, I poke away at every now and again, it's a very small, simple little affair. It's actually designed to teach or introduce students to thinking about uh, John Rawls' uh, a, a theory of justice, uh-huh. um, which as part of it, sort of the step in, the justification for his view of justice um, uh, his principles involves this uh, particular thought experiment uh, mm-hmm. called the, the the original position thought of ex- thought experiment, mm-hmm. which goes something like um, when we're thinking about the sort of ideal just society, the way that we should think about it is you should imagine yourself organizing society from the perspective of what he calls the original position, where you don't know who you're going to be or what you're going to have in the hypothetical society that we're arranging. Um, So you're going to arrange the society, then find out who you are in it. And that's the way that we should approach theorizing about justice. And when you, and then his argument goes, when you theorize about justice in this way, this particular view of justice falls out. And so what the game does is it's an inherently unfair game. Uh, And the way you use it in the classroom is you play it, And then you discuss how it was unfair, you think about it a bit, and then you change the game as a class. So Uh. we decide, okay, well, maybe we'll give each each role a different action, or maybe we'll change the goal, the win condition of the game. We can change a few things about the game, so we'll discuss it, we'll change those things, and then we're going to play it again. and so it's it, the whole activity is a sort of two-part thing, where you play the game twice, and in between you change the rules. And the in-between part simulates Rawls's reasoning from the original position. Um, and so this is, again, now instead of thinking of this abstract thought experiment and trying to hold it all in your heads, you just get the students to do it. Um, act like you're reasoning from the original position, and then we can talk about it instead of having to sort of think abstractly about what this might be like. Well, the um, 
every now and then the superintendent of my school district or others, you know, we kick around the idea of extending our gifted program to the high school, which I am always in favor of. And when it comes to content and what I would do, it's, this is really actually what you're talking about, like your head spinning. This is now mine, I guess, because, you know, we talked about doing, you know, some sort of like philosophy course, um, doing some, you know, just like ideas, but especially with my background in game design, I mean, I'd want to do something with that, obviously. And, you know, I could have kids design games in high school, even if they went through the exact same process in seventh grade. It never gets easier. And in fact, their capacity to put a lot more into their games um, would be commensurate with their um, education and age at that point. But I think this is really, really interesting because it lets them create meaningful games, probably more so than before. And especially just the, it would I think it would, in a lot of ways, sort of change the way they view a lot of games in terms of not just what you're talking about here with, you know, um, justice and, you know, distribution of wealth and um, who gets what, that sort of thing. But you could have a lot of games, either like fine games that would work in the classroom for this, or you could, you know, take and modify to sort of play out these ideas. And I think that's really, really interesting because a lot of times, especially when it comes to working with philosophical concepts, they think you, you know, have to be walking around in a toga asking questions. But especially when it's something that, you know, that really intertwines game design ideas in terms of, you know, choices players have and what the impact of those choices are and what experiences players will actually have with a game when they play it, not just what you think you want to have happen in your head, but then actually tying it to something that has such, can have such personal meaning and like personal thought and reflection on it. I think that's amazing. That's like, I'm, now I'm thinking. (laughs) <laughs> awesome. Isn't I mean, that's cool? all I ever ask for yeah. is getting people to think, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And I mean, I, and I mean, related to that, I can't, it, it's really hard to like put my thumb on it, but I can't help but feel like my philosophical training plays a significant role in, in my ability to design games the way that I do. And as well as I do, I think I'm pretty good at it. Um, and uh, because, because really philosophy is about, Thinking about how you think, asking questions, making sure that uh, you mean what you mean when you say it. So th- thinking about how uh, people's concepts and word use may or may not be clear or may not be communicating what's actually meant. And thinking about the consequences of things. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, really, these basic ideas, um, ask a lot of questions, be clear, think about consequences, uh, and thinking about all of those things in terms of human reasoning and human interactions plays a big role in in designing good games. Uh-huh. Um, and so it makes perfect sense to me that you could flip it as you're kind of suggesting the other way. And you can turn designing games, uh, at least if structured in the right way, into a gateway into thinking about philosophy and engaging philosophical topics. Right. Um, I mean, I know offhand, for instance, a friend of mine, She's teaching a feminist philosophy course right now. And uh, for her capstone project, she's let the students do whatever they want. Uh, they've just, throughout the term, they've had to propose what they want to do and and how they want to do it. And several of the students have decided to design games. And so she's uh-huh. been telling me about it, knowing that I'm excited about these things. Um, and it's been really interesting to hear how these students, um, these undergrad students, are going to be using games to communicate ideas and arguments about intersectionality and uh, and privilege 
through modifications to guess who in one particular case that <laughs> I'm aware of. Um, and what's really cool, I'm kind of excited to see how these projects turn out because I have a feeling what's going to happen is, is their designs are going to reflect very nicely their understanding of these concepts because they're, they're trying to communicate to players of, of this modified guess who, this sort of idea of privilege. And so they've got to understand the concept of privilege in order to communicate it through this game. Um, and so it's really interesting and fascinating that, you know, it, it's both like you can design games in a way like, like my Rawls game to help students understand philosophical concepts, but you can also get students to design games that demonstrates their understanding of philosophical concepts and communicates it to the players through the play experience. Well, and I think, I mean, I'm doing a lot with RPG design right now. My eighth graders are doing um, RPG design. And um, in my life, I'm in one group, and then I started up um, an all-women's RPG group, and it's been a ton of fun. And, you know, one of the big things, especially with my students, you know, saying, like, what is your game about? You know, not just about, you know, wizards and warlocks or whatever. You know, they're using a variety of different published systems, and they're writing their own adventures for them. But is there a particular idea that you know, is like the central core sort of idea in terms of that. And they've come up with some really interesting ones as far as, you know, I mean, I'm trying, I don't remember any off the top of my head, of course, but, you know, like, like almost like things like how do you handle loss? And that's, I know that's not one of them, but just like kind of right. the idea. And I think especially when you're looking at a game as a way to sort of you know, address and look at some sort of abstract concept, there's a lot of really interesting ways you can do that. It's like science fiction in a way, you know, right. science fiction, there's always some rule of our science, you know, science or society that's broken. And it's all about, you know, all the different, you know, the evolution of that to a point where then the story happens and we see what happens. We've talked about like the Hunger Games, for example, you know, um, how an event in the past and look in how it's developed into where they currently are, that sort of thing. Um but I actually have a question for you. So when my students yep. do feedback for each other, um, so I use what's called the, the wink form. They have to say what works when they play test each other's games, and they have to do it on their own. What works, mm-hmm. what needs improvement, what new ideas they have, and then there's also a category, what questions do they have? And these are questions that they should be asking the designer as well as themselves. And this is the hardest quest- the hardest category for them to do, especially in the beginning. Because um, <laughs> and, and at that point, you know, their, their gaming literacy is still developing for sure. Right. Their design literacy is certainly developing for sure. Um, and their questions can be, you know, kind of basic. But trying, and this is something I feel like is definitely a weakness for me. Um, another guest that we're, I'm going to have on the show soon, he does a lot with his gifted students in terms of critical thinking. And so he's looking to use my game design to get them to do more, you know, practical sort of thinking, you know, activities where they're actually building and making things, not just discussing. And I want to learn from him how he has kids discuss these things at such a high level, because I'm really good at having kids do things. I'm not necessarily the best at having them, you know, discuss and talk about why they do things. But what would be some ways to have them, some suggestions for me in terms of getting kids to Ask good questions. Ooh, that's a really good one. Yeah, I mean, asking good questions is a matter, uh, is sort of a really tough thing and is something that you sort of struggle with when you're teaching philosophy because one place you want to get your students to as quickly as possible is to having group discussions, Uh right? You want to have just mostly an ideal philosophy class is just a 
either a bunch of small discussions or one great big group discussion where everybody's asking questions and everybody's sort of challenging. Uh, everybody's asking challenging, interesting questions that's sort of helping everybody else see the material from different perspectives, right? Mm -hmm. So how do you get students to the point where they can actually ask good questions? Um, I think... Uh, I mean, and I actually find the same thing that I'm thinking about it is also part of the subtle mentorship training that I do when I'm part of sort of local board game design groups. Mm -hmm. You get new people coming in, even even adults who are new to game design. And, you know, one big thing you do when you're designing and testing other people's work is it's, it's always uh, for every game that the heuristic is for every game that you get other people to play test of yours. If they're also game designers, you should test at least one, hopefully two of theirs. Sure. Um, but you also want to be able to give good, interesting feedback. And I notice that a lot of new game designers, often their feedback isn't actually as constructive or supportive as it could be. So there's a lot of like subtle mentorship around helping them um, find ways to communicate more clearly what... Uh, what the issues are. So this has been me rambling a little bit because I recognize this is a difficult problem and I'm kind of thinking out loud through uh, ways that, I, that I've seen sort of this, this problem helped with. Um, I apologize. I'm a bit of a, I'm a bit of a slow on my feet thinker. Uh, no, I think that's okay. And, and I think, uh, you know, here I'll, I'll talk for a little bit while you can ruminate okay. a little Good. bit. If that helps, Good. we'll Good. tag off. That'll help. Um, yeah, because, well, one thing, for example, um, so it's a teacher, his name's Seth Yeager, and he's going to be on there. So he really focuses on habits of mind. And there's five different, like, core ideas for habits of mind, um, as far as that goes. And, um, and so that's something that I'm looking more into, and that he and I will talk more about, too. But, yeah. you know, even getting them to start from a place of just kind of questioning, like, their, the designer's base kind of assumptions like why are you assuming that in a game about art thieves there needs to be police you know now yeah. generally speaking you know i wouldn't expect them to ask that question because they will just accept you know so much like oh okay game about art thieves well of course you need to have you know police trying to chase you down and stuff but in the real right. world that's not probably what happens you know by the time right. the police are notified they're long gone you know but it just so you know, what would happen if, or what if kinds of questions, um, you know, sometimes their questions are what would happen if you try, and they'll just suggest a different mechanic. And, and I don't, you know, I'm not pressing them too hard as far as like, they don't get bad grades if they don't ask great questions or anything like that. But I'm just trying to get them to really, one, develop the skills where they're comfortable asking challenging, interesting questions. I mean, considering that I'm working with middle school students, I'm as much coaching them through the design process itself as I am teaching game design. So, like, how do you give good feedback? How do you handle yeah. feedback? How do you make it constructive? You know, this those basic kinds of things as far as feedback goes. So, when it comes to, like, really focusing on really great questions that you could ask, I mean, that's... I mean, honestly, it's pretty far down the road from where right. we start off from. So it occurs to me one way to possibly help with this is to think about what kinds of things as a game designer you actually look for, right? So when you find yourself in a playtest and your playtesters are not game designers and they're giving you feedback in this sort of um, weird ham-fisted way that, that most playtesters do where they think it's helpful, but mostly they're telling you things that that aren't helpful to you as a designer because they're trying to tell you about new mechanics or stuff like that. Right. And you already have a vision for the game. You don't, you don't need guidance on, um, 
on that, what you need is you need feedback on the core experience on, is it fun? Is it hitting its mark? Is it, is it matching up with, um, with, with my vision and so on and so forth. And so when I'm receiving this kind of feedback, usually I'm filtering it. And what I'm filtering for is I'm filtering for two things. I'm filtering for the emotions that are, that are underneath it. Um, are, are these suggestions coming from a place of like deep frustration uh-huh. or, or curiosity? Um, are they, are they making suggestions because they were really frustrated in a bad way? I sort of distinguish between good and bad frustration in my mind. Sure. Um, so are they fresh? Were they frustrated with some aspect of the game experience? And if they were, um, what, what part of the what what part of the game experience was frustrating them if it's making them make these suggestions about it right so trying to get to the sort of root of the problem uh-huh. um, and if, and on the other hand are they coming at this from a place of curiosity are they just pushing around mechanics because this game has intrigued them and they want to see what the system can do and if that's the case what part of the game is is inspiring them um, because I want to find that part of the game, and I want to emphasize it even more in my next iteration. And on the other hand, if it's frustration that's driving them, then that's a part of my game that I, I want to to do something about. I want to fix that. I either want to flip that frustration and make it the good kind, the like, ah, you got me kind. I felt like I was outsmarted. Um, or I want to at least get rid of that like negative kind of frustration. And so if if I was to, to flip that then and say, well, how could I get someone to ask questions that would lead new designers towards these kinds of discoveries? It would be to get them to actually think about what it was like to play the game. Um, I mean, I have a, a feedback form I've never used because I've, I've always been face-to-face in my playtesting. Uh-huh. And my feedback form is just about what it, emotions. I just get like, w- when were you frustrated when you played the game? Um, and what made you frustrated about that moment or uh, and, and this kind of thing? Or what did it feel like when you were playing the game? Did you actually feel like a thief? Um, and so I'm, I, I, and so you might you might find it as a guide to get the students to asking sort of probing questions to actually get them directly to reflect on, their play experience, their expectations versus what they actually got, uh-huh. their frustrations, their emotions. And then on the basis of those, they might be able to construct questions for the designer that will help the designer discover new directions and new possibilities. That's really cool. That's really, really cool because I don't really have the designer prepare much um, in terms of questions for playtesters. And that's something that I could easily do. And especially because, um, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, when you talk about misconceptions about philosophy, misconceptions about middle school students and that they're just these, you know, hormone raging monsters. And um, that is most assuredly not the full picture. Um, But especially to get them to talk about their emotions when they play is something that can be very accessible to them. And, you know, to say and to use that as a way to connect them more like on a personal level with the game and the game experience and can help them become more emotionally invested in the success of the game for the designer and thus you know helping to cross that bridge of when you're talking about being comfortable to ask challenging interesting questions I think that could do a lot in terms of getting them to have you know that sort of like personal experience playing the game not just here's the thing you're working on 
And that way, too, when they say, like, did you really feel like a chicken crossing the road, like in one of the games, you know, because right now she said it's it's kind of, you know, this one game, she said she's not super happy with it. She's like, it's kind of boring. I'm like, that's okay. Boring. We can make more exciting. But that's a really that's a really good way. I think I can approach it with them to get them having this discussion. And then it ties it back to like putting them, what you were saying earlier, putting them in a situation where they have that experience. And then from there, they can extrapolate out and analyze, you know, something else in terms of, you know, from a more pure way, like justice, like you were saying. So it all kind of comes back together. Yeah, I think it does. Uh, And I think that's, uh, that's a good summary of how I think about everything. (laughs) Well, there we go. I I think we nailed it then. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> um, if, if you one last question if you could like wave sure. your magic wand mm-hmm. um, and have teachers do one thing in the classroom so you've got me here Kathleen please do this what's one thing you would want me to do well I mean I already know you do this but I think uh, the one thing I would I would love teachers overall at all levels to do more in their classrooms is incorporate play um, yes. whether that's games or other kinds of sort of free form interaction where students have the opportunity to be the authors of the outcome. Um, and they play a genuine role in sort of shaping what happens. Uh, I think classrooms could everywhere could benefit from more of that. So yeah, play. authors of the outcome. I love that. My, the thing I always say is I want my students to be creators, not just consumers. Um, and both are very active takes on what we think, students are capable of and it's funny because like with them I talk about this all the time because they're so used to you know being you know passive sort of receptacle whether it's in class here's this knowledge learn it tell you know repeat it back to me or you know even when they play games you know they might have a really great intense experience but it's still somebody else's game but to shift them from you know the consumer to the creator from you know um, the reader you know to the author I think is a really good point yeah. This is awesome. Thank you so this much. This is awesome. I feel- I, I've been happy to. This has been great. Yeah. 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 No. Well, I mean, I'd love to have you on again. And I want to also say, too, you know, um, when I was having working on my game rules this semester, I was really looking at game rules and how I teach my students to write game rules. And it's going so much better. And I want to thank you because you did um, you gave me a lot of good suggestions um, as far as like the style guide and just different ideas in terms of how I teach game rules to students. So I really appreciate um, your time on that. And I think you tagged a couple people, too. Um, to bring their attention to it. So thanks for that, because my students were actually really, really impressed that other people thought this was interesting. I'd open up the Google Doc, and I'd see all, like, the anonymous llamas and stuff like that at the top. I'm like, see, you guys, people care, and this is something that's real and matters. And one of my students' parents, she said, he thought that was just the coolest thing ever. So thank you for what you've done for my class. And I'm not kidding. If there's anything you want teachers to, like, pilot out for what you're developing, I absolutely 100%. We have... A huge gifted population. We have three gifted teachers at my school, and we'll be more than happy to do this if you need us to. I am absolutely going to take you up on that because that's the one the one big challenge I've had with this project is, as I'd mentioned, I don't have a lot of opportunities to teach myself. So um, you should be expecting to receive some homework from me. Excellent. I think that is quite fair. I think that's quite fair. All right. Well, Jesse, where can people find you um, online? Uh, the best way is honestly by email. Um, my email is up on my on both of my websites. So j- jessewright dot 
jessewrigg.com, J-E-S-S-E-Y-W-R-I-G-H-T. Um, that's my academic site, but there you'll also find under the resources tab anything that I've made that I've put out there for teaching. There's a, like a little teaching page with a couple of little things that I've made um, on games, but also student participation. Um, and uh, also my game design website uh, is through the void dot com um and that's where you it's just a little collection of games of mine that are published and out in the world or games that i was part of the development of mm -hmm. and so if you're interested in that kind of stuff you want to go buy something that's fun and you think i make fun things check out through the void if you're interested in using games in your classroom or just reaching out to me jessywright.com my email's right on the front page excellent so wait, so what's the url for the void then uh through the void.com cool Excellent. Well, this is Kathleen Mercury. Um, you can find me on, uh, I'm on Facebook, active in groups like Association of Board Game Educators, which you should join. Um, in addition, please like and join um, the Games in Schools and Libraries podcast page um, Facebook. You can find me on Twitter at at Mercury with seven M. So it's at Mercury. And um, I'm on Board Game Geek as Funk Donut. And of course, KathleenMercury.com, where I put all of my teaching resources for free um, for people to use. And I love collaborating and helping. I just got to talk to somebody in Australia this week um, who wants to use some of my resources. So that was super cool. So I love doing that. So Jesse, thank you so much. I hope you come on the show again. Definitely let me know. Cool. Let's stay in touch. All right. Absolutely. Well, thanks, Seth. And we'll speak to everyone soon. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to another episode of Games in Schools and Libraries, a podcast produced in association between Inverse Genius and the Georgetown County Library System. For more information about the show and the people who create it, you can head over to InverseGenius.com and also find out more about our other podcasts like Onboard Games on RPGs, on Miniatures Games, the Inverse Genius Podcast, and the Room Escape Divas. If you would like to be on the show, or have questions, comments, or ideas for episodes, please contact us at schoolsandlibraries at gmail.com and let us know. We do have our episodes booked out for several weeks in advance, so if you have something time-sensitive, you will want to contact us as early as possible. <laughs>